Section 33. Our Intelligence Department. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. An indispensable adjunct of this scheme will be the institution of what may be called an intelligence department at headquarters. Power, it has been said, belongs to the best informed, and if we are effectually to deal with the forces of social evil, we must have ready at our fingers' ends the accumulated experience and information of the whole world on this subject. The collection of facts and the systematic record of them would be invaluable, rendering the results of the experiments of previous generations available for the information of our own. At the present there is no central institution, either governmental or otherwise, in this country or any other, which charges itself with the duty of collecting and collating the ideas and conclusions on social economy, so far as they are likely to help the solution of the problem we have in hand. The British Home Office has only begun to index its own papers. The local government board is in a similar condition, and although each particular blue book may be admirably indexed, there is no classified index of the whole series. If this is the case with the government, it is not likely that the innumerable private organizations which are pecking here and there at the social question should possess any systematized method for the purpose of comparing notes and storing information. This intelligence department, which I propose to found on a small scale at first, will have in it the germ of vast extension which will, if adequately supported, become a kind of university in which the accumulated experiences of the human race will be massed, digested, and rendered available to the humblest toiler in the great work of social reform. At the present moment, who is there that can produce in any of our museums and universities as much as a classified index of publications relating to one of the many heads under which I have dealt with this subject. Who is there among all our wise men and social reformers that can send me a list of all the best tracts upon, say, the establishment of agricultural colonies, or the experiments that have been made in dealing with inebriates? or the best plans for the construction of a working man's cottage. For the development of this scheme, I want an office to begin with, in which, under the head of the varied subjects treated of in this volume, I may have arranged the condensed essence of all the best books that have been written, and the names and addresses of those whose opinions are worth having upon them, together with a note of what those opinions are, and the results of experiments which have been made in relation to them. I want to establish a system which will enable me to use not only the eyes and hands of salvation officers, but of sympathetic friends in all parts of the world, for the purposes of noticing and reporting at once every social experiment of importance. Any words of wisdom on the social question whether it may be the breeding of rabbits, 
the organization of an emigration service, the best method of conducting a cottage farm, or the best way of cooking potatoes. There is nothing in the whole range of our operations upon which we should not be accumulating and recording the results of human experience. What I want is to get the essence of wisdom which the wisest have gathered from the widest experience, rendered instantly available for the humblest worker in the salvation factory or farm colony, and for any other toiler in similar fields of social progress. It can be done, and in the service of the people it ought to be done. I look for helpers in this department, among those who hitherto may not have cared for the Salvation Army, but who, in the seclusion of their studies and libraries, will assist in the compiling of this great index of sociological experiments, and who would be willing, in this form, to help in this scheme as associates for the ameliorating of the condition of the people, if in nothing else than in using their eyes and ears and giving me the benefit of their brains as to where knowledge lies and how it can best be utilized. I propose to make a beginning by putting two capable men and a boy in an office with instructions to cut out, preserve, and verify all contemporary records in the daily and weekly press that have a bearing upon any branch of our departments. Round these two men and a boy will grow up, I confidently believe, a vast organization of zealous unpaid workers who will cooperate in making our intelligence department a great storehouse of information, a universal library where any man may learn what is the sum of human knowledge upon any branch of the subject which we have taken in hand. Cooperation in general. If anyone asked me to state in one word what seemed likely to be the key of the solution of the social problem, I should answer unhesitatingly, cooperation. It being always understood that it is cooperation conducted on righteous principles and for wise and benevolent ends. Otherwise, association cannot be expected to bear any more profitable fruit than individualism. Cooperation is applied association, association for the purpose of production and distribution. Cooperation implies the voluntary combination of individuals to the attaining of an object by mutual help, mutual counsel, and mutual effort. There is a great deal of idle talk in the world just now about capital, as if capital were the enemy of labor. It is quite true that there are capitalists, not a few who may be regarded as the enemies, not only of labor, but of the human race. But capital itself, so far from being a natural enemy of labor, is the great object which the laborer has constantly in view. However much an agitator may denounce capital, his one great grievance is that he has not enough of it for himself. Capital, therefore, is not an evil in itself. On the contrary, it is good, 
so good that one of the great aims of the social reformer ought to be to facilitate its widest possible distribution among his fellow men. It is the congestion of capital that is evil, and the labor question will never be finally solved until every laborer is his own capitalist. All this is trite enough, and has been said a thousand times already, but unfortunately with the saying of it the matter ends. Cooperation has been brought into practice in relation to distribution with considerable success. But cooperation as a means of production has not achieved anything like the success that was anticipated. Again and again, enterprises have been begun on cooperative principles, which bid fair, in the opinion of the promoters, to succeed. But after one, two, three, or ten years, the enterprise which was started with such high hopes has dwindled away into either total or partial failure. At present, many cooperative undertakings are nothing more or less than huge joint stock limited liability concerns, shares of which are held largely by working people, but not necessarily, and sometimes not at all, by those who are actually employed in the so-called cooperative business. Now, why is this? Why do cooperative firms, cooperative factories, and cooperative utopias so often come to grief. I believe the cause is an open secret and can be discerned by anyone who will look at the subject with an open eye. The success of industrial concerns is largely a question of management. Management signifies government, and government implies authority. An authority is the last thing which cooperators of the utopian order are willing to recognize as an element essential to the success of their schemes. The cooperative institution, which is governed on parliamentary principles, with unlimited right of debate and right of obstruction, will never be able to compete successfully with institutions which are directed by a single brain wielding the united resources of a disciplined and obedient army of workers. Hence, to make cooperation a success, you must superadd to the principle of consent the principle of authority. You must invest in those to whom you entrust the management of your cooperative establishment the same liberty of action that is possessed by the owner of works on the other side of the repudiation of the rotten and effete regime of the Bourbons. The French peasants and workmen imagined that they were inaugurating the millennium when they scrawled liberty, equality, and fraternity across all the churches in every city in France. They carried their principles of freedom and license to the logical ultimate, and attempted to manage their army on parliamentary principles. It did not work. Their undisciplined levies were driven back, disorder reigned in the Republican camp, and the French Revolution would have been stifled in its cradle had not the instinct of the nation discerned in time the weak point in its armor. 
menaced by foreign wars and intestine revolt, the Republic established an iron discipline in its army and enforced obedience by the summary process of military execution. The liberty and the enthusiasm developed by the outburst of the long-pent-up revolutionary forces supplied the motive power. But it was the discipline of the revolutionary armies, the stern, unbending obedience which was enforced in all ranks from the highest to the lowest, which created for Napoleon the admirable military instrument by which he shattered every throne in Europe and swept in triumph from Paris to Moscow. In industrial affairs, we are very much like the French Republic before it tempered its doctrine of the rights of man by the duty of obedience on the part of the soldier. We have got to introduce discipline into the industrial army. We have to superadd the principle of authority to the principle of cooperation, and so to enable the worker to profit to the full by the increased productiveness of the willing labor of men who are employed in their own workshops and on their own property. There is no need to clamor for great schemes of state socialism. The whole thing can be done simply, economically, and speedily, if only the workers will practice as much self-denial for the sake of establishing themselves as capitalists as the soldiers of the Salvation Army practice every year in self-denial week. What is the sense of never making a levy except during a strike? Instead of calling for a shilling or two shillings a week in order to maintain men who are starving in idleness because of a dispute with their masters, why should there not be a levy kept up for weeks or months by the workers for the purpose of setting themselves up in business as masters? There would then be no longer a capitalist owner face to face with the masses of the proletariat, but all the means of production, the plant, and all the accumulated resources of capital would really be at the disposal of labor. This will never be done, however, as long as cooperative experiments are carried on in the present archaic fashion. Believing in cooperation as the ultimate solution, if to cooperation you can add subordination, I am disposed to attempt something in this direction in my new social scheme. I shall endeavor to start a cooperative farm on the principles of Rallaheine and base the whole of my farm colony on a cooperative foundation. In starting this little cooperative commonwealth, I am reminded by those who are always at a man's elbow to fill him with forebodings of ill to look at the failures which I have just referred to which make up the history of the attempt to realize ideal commonwealths in this practical workaday world. Now, I have read the history of the many attempts at cooperation that have been made to form the communistic settlements in the United States, and I am perfectly familiar with the sorrowful fate with which nearly all have been overtaken. But the story of their failures does not deter me in the least, for I regard them as nothing more than warnings to avoid certain mistakes. 
beacons to illustrate the need of proceeding on a different tack. Broadly speaking, your experimental communities fail because your utopias all start upon the system of equality and government by vote of the majority, and as a necessary and unavoidable consequence, your utopians get to loggerheads, and utopia goes to smash. I shall avoid that rock. The farm colony, like all the other departments of the scheme, will be governed not on the principle of counting noses, but on the exactly opposite principle of admitting no noses into the concern that are not willing to be guided by the directing brain. It will be managed on principles which assert that the fittest ought to rule, and it will provide for the fittest being selected, and having got them at the top, will insist on universal and unquestioning obedience from those at the bottom. If anyone does not like to work for his rations and submit to the orders of his superior officers, he can leave. There is no compulsion on him to stay. The world is wide, and outside the confines of our colony and the operations of our corps, my authority does not extend." But judging from our brief experience, it is not from revolt against authority that the scheme is destined to fail. There cannot be a greater mistake in this world than to imagine that men object to be governed. They like to be governed, provided that the governor has his head screwed on right, and that he is prompt to hear and ready to see and recognize all that is vital to the interests of the commonwealth. So, far from there being an innate objection on the part of mankind to being governed, the instinct to obey is so universal that even when governments have gone blind and deaf, and paralytic, rotten with corruption, and hopelessly behind the times, they still contrive to live on. Against a capable government, no people ever rebel. Only when stupidity and incapacity have taken possession of the seat of power do insurrections break out. End of section 33. Recording by Tom Hirsch.